Thank you very much. When I was a high school student in Freeport, New York, one afternoon I picked up Sinclair Lewis's wonderful novel, Arrowsmith. And this novel, which I hope some of you have had occasion to read, begins with a description of the way in which Martin Arrowsmith was inspired to go to medical school, at which he met the, um, the famed European immunologist, Max, uh, Max uh, Goldfield, and Max Gottlieb, sorry, and then uh, as a result of economic problems, uh, had to spend a couple of frustrating years uh, working as a general practitioner and later uh, as a public health officer, but then heard that uh, his friend Max Gottlieb was now uh, uh, an independent investigator at the McGurk Institute, Reed Rockefeller Institute in New York, and Aerosmith was uh, enticed to join Gottlieb at the McGurk. And within the course of a year or two, he made an important discovery that there were viruses called bacteriophage that could kill bacteria. Now this was roughly 1910 or so, at a time when bacterial diseases were a major scourge, antibiotics had not been invented. And although he had been preempted by the discovery of bacteriophage by investigators in Europe just a few months earlier, he alone recognized the possible importance of using bacteriophage to treat bacterial illness. When plague erupted in the Caribbean, Aerosmith and his trusty wife, Leona, and uh, an esteemed public health colleague repaired to uh, St. Croix and attempted to deal with the plague epidemic. I won't tell you how that came out. I'll leave it to you to read the book. Now, if this were an obvious conventional story about my own life, I would now tell you that inspired by that book, I immediately went off into medical research. That's not the case. I simply like to read. And I went the next year to Amherst College, where I became more obsessed with reading and literature, majored in English literature, edited the Amherst College newspaper, uh, and went off to graduate school in English the following year. During my year at graduate school, I became particularly interested in Freud and decided I wanted to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist. So I went to Columbia Medical School, where I became more interested in internal medicine than I did in psychiatry. And following medical school, spent two years as a house officer at Presbyterian Hospital. So I didn't start any research activity until I was 28 years old, when finding the need to do some alternative service in, a, in the era of the Vietnam War, I sought out refuge in the National Institutes of Health, where I began working with bacteriophage and bacteria, the very subject of Martin Arrowsmith's own researches, and learned about the emerging field of molecular biology, which had been in existence for nearly 15 years, but I had been oblivious to it. During the course of those two years, I got the bug, the excitement of, work, of doing medical research, but wanted to work closer to the medical interface. That is, I wanted to work on something that involved human disease. In 1910, an investigator at the Rockefeller Institute, Reed McGurk Institute, named Peyton Rouse, had been presented with a chicken that had a large tumor. And by looking carefully at that tumor, he discovered that the tumor was caused by a virus called Rouse sarcoma virus. In 1970, I went to the University of California, San Francisco, and joined with my colleague, Mike Bishop, with whom I shared the Nobel Prize this year. And we attempted to ask about the nature of the gene in the Rouse sarcoma virus that's responsible for that virus's ability to cause cancers. What we learned was that the gene carried by the Rouse sarcoma virus 
comes originally from normal cells. We all have that gene. It's called the Sark gene. Normally, that gene is involved in some still mysterious way. There are frontiers left to, left to, left to probe here. That gene is involved in controlling the growth and development of our, of our cells normally. And it's not alone. There are many such genes that are involved in controlling our development that can, as a result of mutations, play a role in cancer. Over the past 15 or 20 years or so, Mike and I and our colleagues in San Francisco and many others in the oncogene community around the world have been probing these problems, attempting to understand how genes that, uh, that govern normal growth can undergo mutations that result in their uh, participating in the development of a cancer cell. This is a wonderful field to work in for a variety of reasons. It's energetic. I was re reminded uh, in thinking about what I was going to say to you of the remarks made to you yesterday by the painter. We go into our labs every morning. We have not, not an easel before us, but test tubes and, and centrifuges and other equipment. And the world is ours to create. There's often rock music in the background, lots of young kids, um, graduate students and, and postdocs uh, at the benches. And I should hasten to add here that although you've seen a very heavily, heavy representation of male figures on this podium in the field of molecular biology and oncogenetics, uh, we see equal representation of males and females, much to my pleasure. Back in the 20th century, one of the things we'll uh, take great pleasure in is the way in which we've learned how our genes encode our destiny and how those genes are regulated to uh, make us the wonderful individuals that we are. I'd like to stop here at this point and take questions about anything that uh, concerns the viruses we work on. I haven't mentioned that the viruses that we study are retroviruses, uh, and among the most prominent retroviruses, uh, household word at this point, is uh, so-called HIV, the AIDS virus. Uh, much of the work we do is in the area of AIDS and uh, the manner in which viruses such as the AIDS virus grow and how we might find ways to uh, interrupt the growth of that virus. So I'd be happy to take questions about uh, retroviruses, oncogenes, and other aspects of uh, molecular biology or, or biological science. Thank you very much. Um, this is a, a pretty simple question. Um, you talk about retrovirus, retroviruses causing cancer, oncogenes playing a role in cancer. Um, is it necessary to um, have both? In other words, are they, are they really independent phenomena um, for causing cancer, or are they um, dependent, or what's their relationship? Yes. Yeah, let me deal with that as simply as I can. Most of the retroviruses that have been useful experimentally are retroviruses that are found in animals, chickens, rats, mice, and other experimental animals. And those retroviruses can cause cancer in either of two ways, either because they have, at some time in their history, picked up a normal cellular gene and converted it to the, to the use of being instrumental in causing cancer, or they can insert their, gene, their own genes next to a potentially cancer-causing gene in normal chromosomes and distort the regulation of that gene. In human cancer, there's only one retrovirus that's clearly been implicated in cancer, and that's the human T-cell leukemia virus, a virus that's very important as a causative agent of leukemia in, in Japan, but uh, a causative agent of very few leukemias in this country. What we know about leukemias in this country uh, has much more to do with the kinds of genes that were first identified because they appear in certain animal retroviruses 
but are not uh, uh, directly activated because of some viral events in the, in, in the course of human cancer. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I was just wondering about your opinion to the, uh, or the theory as to how the so-called peroxisome proliferators and other non-mutagenic tumorigens generate cancers. Right. Uh, but one important question in the causation of most cancers, I should point out that the vast majority of cancers in this country are not virus-caused. They're caused, we believe, by mutations that affect the genes that I've been describing. Um, one, of, one question one has to ask is how do those mutations arise? Uh, and one way in which such mutations arise is by chemical changes in the DNA during the growth of a cell. And that can be the consequence of uh, oxidation of nucleic acid or other, other um, methylation of nucleic acid. So that any part of the, of the cell's metabolic machinery that affects the possibility of mutation of DNA can lead to the mutations that cause cancer. So uh, the question I'm asking is these particular uh, chemicals seem to, or at least this data has shown, without directly interacting with the DNA, uh, generate tumors that are in histochemically identical or through the tissue analysis identical to uh, virus or mutation-induced tumors. Uh, just wondering your opinion as to the theories. Well, one can imagine that a change in the meta metabolic state of the cell could change, for example, the redox potential in the cell and thereby lead to, to damage to DNA. We can talk about that later if you like. Let me take the question in the back. Hi, my name is Stephen Malloy. I'm from Long Island, New York. Um, I was wondering if you know of any developments within biotechnology that are promising possibly to come up with a, a way to combat the HIV virus before uh, the vaccines. Yes, there's several. Um, there are two areas, and when, when one thinks about uh, interfering with HIV, basically two classical strategies. One is to develop a vaccine that would pre prevent infection in a previously uninfected individual. Another approach is to find drugs that interfere with the growth of the virus. AIDS, unlike the classical viral infections that, you're, that you know more about, is a, is a lingering infection that lasts for many years. In fact, people are infected for years before uh, symptoms appear. And if one can interfere with the growth of the virus, that might be a promising way to go. There are several developments that are important. One, just to give you a couple of examples, it's been known for some years that a normal cell surface protein is the attachment site by which the AIDS virus gets into a cell. We know what component of the AIDS virus attaches to that normal cell surface protein. It's now possible to devise ways to interfere with the interaction between the viral protein and the cell surface protein and try to prevent entry of the virus into the cell. Another very exciting example is unpublished news that has been promulgated uh, by word of mouth and at meetings, and that is that it's possible to use uh, the principles of structural biology to design drugs um, even when you, you don't have a, a, a known inhibitor of, of a drug for a certain enzyme. The example here is, comes from the discovery some years ago that AIDS viruses carry within them, as do all retroviruses, an enzyme that cuts proteins. And that protein-cutting enzyme is essential for the viability of the virus. By studying the structure of that protein-cutting enzyme and by doing modeling with computers, it's been possible to predict the shape of a drug that might interfere with the activity of that protein-cutting enzyme. And by going through the list of 
um, drugs that had that known structure, it's been possible to identify drugs which, while not yet clinically useful, do at least have inhibitory activity in a test tube. And by further refining such uh, computer analyses, it may be possible in the not-too-distant future to make better and better drugs against, uh, against components of the AIDS virus that are essential for, for its growth. Yeah, I hear the beeper beeping. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy the rest of the session.